The Gist is brought to you by Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers right to your door everything you need to create a home-cooked meal. Farm-fresh ingredients are perfectly portioned and come with an easy-to-follow recipe card so you can create a delicious dinner in 40 minutes or less. Visit blueapron.com gist to get your first two meals free. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, May 24th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So they call it the Arab Spring, but maybe they should just call it the Tunisia Spring. It started in Tunisia with a self-immolation. The movement caught fire, but in country after country, things just wound up singed or in much of Libya, much of Syria, immolated. So maybe it's spring in the sense that it's not a season of rebirth, but in the sense that it's a tight coil that if unwound could either propel things further or more likely, in my experience, cause an injury if you get your finger caught inside. But in Tunisia, it does seem to be working. A long New Yorker article a couple months ago about government crackdowns and the appeal of militants had me all pessimistic. But Rached Ganouchi won re-election. He is a Muslim, but he wants to be known as not an Islamist. Ganouchi declared that he will operate the country's politics as Muslim Democrats. That's the phrase he uses. And he'll do it within his party. And nada, it means renaissance. That by the way, in Tunisia, has no connotation of failed actors or LARPers trying to get you to buy ye old funnel cakes. So in Tunisia, it's all good. It's all positive. Renaissance. Very refreshing. And then I found out what the party name Anada started off as. Original name, the Islamic Tendency Movement. Isn't that nice? Not too demanding, not too pleading. It's the Islamic, let's say the proclivity, maybe strong leaning. You know what? You want to say tendency? I can live with that. The Islamic tendency movement. You know, perhaps some other groups in the region should rebrand. Like, we're always debating, is it Islamic State in the Levant? Is it Islamic State in Syria? Is it ISIS? Is it ISIL? How about ISIS? It's much nicer. It's less grabby. There's Hezbollah, the party of God. Pretty presumptuous, if you ask me. How about Hezbobab? party of Bob. Who's Bob? He's just a guy we all like. He catered the first two meetings. There is no Bob but Bob. I've got all the solutions, people. And these solutions rely on really idiotic ideas. Which brings me to today's spiel. Vetting the detailed plans and stratagems of one Donald J. Trump. Panels upon panels of experts agree. But first, the governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper, in his new memoir, tells a story of when he went to the White House with a gift for President Obama. It was a belt buckle and had a picture of a donkey on it, donkey, symbol of Democrats, and inscribed in his belt buckle was the phrase, get your ass in gear. So the Secret Service looked at him as kind of nuts. They looked at the belt buckle as contraband, didn't get to give it to Obama. Good story, though. It's, he's full of good stories. As a young man, he opened Denver's first brewery in a century. He helped create the craft brewing trend. He became mayor of Denver, became governor of Colorado. Some are talking about John Hickenlooper as vice president, but I am talking to him about a much bigger position. Just guest. Blue Apron. I get to talk about Blue Apron. Came on a Saturday, ate it on a Saturday, ate it on a Sunday. Left one pork chop over. The kids fought over the pork chop like a couple of crazed dogs. Such was the flavor of the pork chop. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. Fresh ingredients. I'll, I'll give you some advice. Either the spinach 
or the garlic should be fresh. But if they're both fresh, it's really good. But to me, fresh garlic, extremely important. Didn't realize it until Blue Apron entered my life. And they've got these artisanal suppliers, fisheries, ranchers, the garlic guy, all giving you the freshest stuff. Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, heirloom tomatoes. For less than $10 a meal, they deliver seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Also, they're, they're really respectful of your time. They'll say, cook it in this pot. And then the instructions will say, in the pot that was just cooking the, say, pork chops, you could start making the spinach. And then the spinach might taste a little like the pork chops. Maybe people who cook know this, but I never did. Thanks, Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and you get two meals free, free, with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash gist. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. Do not wait. That's blueapron.com slash gist. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. John Wright Hickenlooper Jr. Luckily for the governor of Colorado, his full name sounds even funnier when you're high. Now, we just met, but I knew that he would laugh at that because of a few details in his new memoir, which is called The Opposite of Woe, My Life in Beer and Politics. The first thing is that he forefronts the beer, which I thought was a good choice. The second thing is that in the book, he tells a story of one time he's feeling a little sorry for his mom. She's an empty nester. She's a widow. He says, well, I've got to go see a movie. Why don't you come along, mom? And no, no, no. I does. asked her if she wanted to come along. She said she wanted to come along. And, then, and the name of that movie was? Well, that was Deep Throat. It was deep throat. But we didn't know what X movies were. It was the very first X movie, and we thought it was just maybe a little bit blue, a little bit off color. Right. Well, it was a lot of bit blue, but she stuck with it because she her, has a soul of an artist. Well, about her, she's very frugal. She sewed all her own clothes, and she, she figured if we paid, I said, shouldn't mm-hmm. we leave in the first scene, first raunchy scene? She, says, she goes, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> so this idea of you, did you go with your brother to that movie? No, an old friend of mine, oh, yeah. Jed Rulon Miller, who uh, right. I, I came home and we hadn't seen each other. So we agreed to go see what an X movie looked like. We were kind of excited. And then I got home and saw my mom had cooked this big meal. And I felt awful telling her like, you know, an hour later, food's gone. I, we're going to go see a movie. So I just said, I have got to go, and I'm sure you don't want to go. And she go, oh, no, I'd like to go. I said, well, it's an X movie. No, no, I'd like to go. Now, if young people, we should note this, that if young people, if their minds are being blown by, A, the governor of Colorado admitting to this, and B, the fact that he would take his mom to a movie, back then, this was the thing to do. This was a cool thing. Celebrities would be seen being photographed to show how cutting edge they were to go see Deep Throat and discuss it on Johnny Carson. What I'm saying is it's a different time. Anyway, I haven't even <laughs> I haven't even uh, properly welcomed you, Governor Hickenlooper. Thanks for stopping by. Great to be here, Mike. I think you are the only governor who has a staff uh, member with the title Director of Marijuana Coordination? I believe I am. Okay. So here's what I want to ask you about that. And we want to get into other things too. It's probably the thing that your state is best known for outside of the state. It passed by popular referendum, correct? Yes. And you were against it? Yes. Okay. Have you backed off that to some extent, your original opposition? Yeah. You know, I've said that the... When we first passed it, I mean, no one wants to be in conflict with federal law. Right. No one wants to have to build a whole regulatory framework from scratch. These are daunting challenges. But, you know, the feds are allowing allowing us to be this laboratory of democracy and see how we do. 
and uh, the the regulatory framework, you know, it's it's it needs to be improved, but it's working. I'm not ready to say, you know, I, I think it's going to succeed. I'm all for it. Other governors should do it. I, I still tell other governors, let's wait a year or wait mm-hmm. two more years. Let's see if there are unintended consequences. But I'm, I'm much more optimistic than I was. Okay. So that tells me a few things. One, we should note that you have a science background. You're a geologist. So it impresses me that you didn't prejudge this, that you let the experiment play, play out, which is good science in a way. Good social science in your well, case. Well, it's also good politics. You know, mm-hmm. if, if your voters, even if, if you oppose something, if they pass it 55-45, you've got a pretty serious obligation to get out there and, and, and at least try to see if you can implement it. Let me ask you another question about marijuana and your background, my life in beer and politics. Do you think as a beer guy, did that give you – I guess you could argue that it could have given you insight in that we had prohibition in this country. Maybe you could make the analogy that in the next hundred years, we'll, we'll look at marijuana like the Puritans looked at beer. Or maybe it gave you another kind of insight. You know the value of beer socially. You know the value of beer just in terms of taste. And then you look at marijuana, another controlled substance, but you know it's basically only used to get high. I'm sure someone who writes a blog will tell me differently, but that's why people use it. So did your perspective and your background inform your opinion of uh, marijuana? Yeah, I think it, and the fact I smoked marijuana when I was young, you know, yes. and, and it had those youthful indiscretions, as we say. You know, I look at it on a on that larger scale and the fact that Puritans didn't hate beer, right? For them, mm-hmm. it was when you had so much bad drinking water, it was a way you could drink something and know that it wasn't going to be polluted and make you sick. Marijuana is a little different, but it's fair to say that if we're right, if the, if this regulatory framework holds, we're very worried about still kids. There are more kids going to start taking it. Every, you know, brain scientist I talk to, the high THC, 10 times like when I was a kid, when teenagers' brains are growing very rapidly, which they do all the way up to the age of 23, 22, 23, 24, when their brains are growing rapidly, the high THC marijuana has the potential, the probability of interrupting that brain growth for a moment and actually diminishing some of their long-term memory, which over a period of time, frequent uses could really reduce your IQ by several points. Kids don't realize that, and that's one of the things we're worried about. We want to make sure that we're not kind of making it okay for kids to smoke pot. Right. Beer, by the way, or alcohol isn't great for young brains either. No, but it doesn't hurt them like this. I haven't seen any study that says if you end up drinking three beers, that that you're going to permanently reduce your your long-term memory. That's true, but I haven't seen the studies that show in utero marijuana hurts. I mean, actually smoking anything hurts, but I have, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome has been much more documented. That's high levels of alcohol. Right. That that fetal alcohol syndrome comes from people over-imbibing frequently during their their pregnancy. You know, to be apples to apples, you know, it's a question of whether that with teenagers who who think they're in they think they're going to live forever, indestructible. If they think that they can go ahead and do this on a regular basis and it's going to be okay, which so far we haven't seen that. We saw we see a little rise, but not mm-hmm. a spike like we, we were worried about. And we we're also, I mean, if we're successful in driving drug dealers, you know, marijuana dealers out of the market. So yeah. instead of having, they can maybe sell heroin and crack and you know meth or whatever and marijuana. Take the marijuana out of that, you would assume that you're going to have much less, much fewer drug dealers. Drug dealers don't care who they sell to. So if we diminish the number of drug dealers, we're probably making it harder for teenagers to get pot, which by all measures, you know, five years ago before this experiment began, I mean, and it is, it's a social experiment, but before that began, kids could get, almost any kid could get marijuana because there are drug dealers in pretty much every neighborhood. Right. Have you seen a diminution in drug dealing overall in your state? 
it's hard to measure because we don't have statistics on how many corners we have drug yes. dealers. And in the census, almost no one fills out drug dealer. They rarely, rarely. Yeah. Uh, only, the, only the brave. Yeah. But we have anecdotal. There's a, a guy who owns a day labor company and, and people come in and work for a day. Usually they're recovering alcoholics or, or addicts. And they go out and work a day. They come back. They get cash. They leave. Usually he said he always had one or two drug dealers around trying to convince them to, to part with their money. He says for the last year, year and a half, he hasn't seen any drug dealers around. And that's, you know, anecdotally, that's a good sign. Now, what about this idea of funding the schools through marijuana? Anything, any syntax or any controversial program like the lottery or like Governor Christie in New Jersey wanted legalized gambling? You know, one way to sell it is to, is to always say, and the first however much money will go to schools. I mean, if schools, firehouses too, but usually schools are a priority, shouldn't they just be a priority? Not married to this, you know, controversial way of getting money? I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it, it creates a serious conflict of interest so that your public officials are going to be sitting there. On one hand, they know they need more money for schools. Yep. And on the other hand, are they in a position now where their self-interest is to try covertly or, or openly that they should try and market the you know more sales of marijuana? This has actually happened with sin taxes and cigarettes in some places. Sure. Like as cigarette smoking goes down, people are like, oh, we need the money. Or, and gambling. I mean, yeah. I don't think anybody – most of us think, all right, gambling – it's not government's job to regulate it and, and, and lock people up because they gamble occasionally. But we know that gambling is not good for people. You walk through a, most casinos, if you're down in the slots, you see people sitting there intensely playing these slot machines. They don't look joyful or happy. They're intense. They're hoping they win. They, they're mm-hmm. in a different place. Not, and there are lots of exceptions. Yeah. But we don't want to encourage it and we don't want to have government in a position where it's getting – it has a self-interest to encourage more gambling. But that's what we do every time we legalize all these these casinos. Am I hearing that Colorado might follow the example of Bhutan and be the first state to gauge gross happiness within the state? I like that as a criteria for government policy. You know, uh, we're not. Uh, but but I do. I think what Bhutan d- does is very interesting. And I think it, it should be something that government measures, right? I mean, is our job to get people the most money they could possibly have? Or is our job to you know solve problems? In a funny way, quality of life starts with a good job. So we spend the, the, our first priority is trying to make sure we have enough jobs and we're growing jobs and the people can can work if they want to. Uh, after that, then you've got you know education, you've got healthcare, you've got the normal waterfall of public services that are all well and good. But somewhere in there is joy. Yeah, right. That that, that it should matter to us elected officials whether. Whether people are happy. Life, liberty, happy. and what's the third one? The pursuit of it's happiness. It's going to be property, but they change it to pursuit well, of happiness. Well, but and they, it is interesting that it's the pursuit of happiness. It's yes. not happiness. We can't guarantee happiness. Right, exactly. Thank God they it, didn't put that in there. Is Colorado a purple state? Oh, yeah. yeah. I think we are. It's funny. Colorado is almost exactly one-third Republican, yeah. one-third Democrat, and one-third unaffiliated, which is a, a powerful thing to remember in terms of a purple state to have that many people in the middle really does kind of set us apart. So in terms of prospects for 20, I'm going to ask you two questions. I'm going to ask you presidential politics and local or everything else. But in 2016, it's so hard to know what Trump will mean. But, you know, what's the case that the Democrats are going to win Colorado? I think in the end that Hillary's going to do very well, or the Democrats, obviously, I think Hillary's probably going to win the nomination. Uh, In the end, Coloradans are pragmatic and they generally are pretty pro-business. And I think that that you know Donald Trump, you know he's he's so kind of loose on here's what I'm going to do. No, I'm not sure I'm going to do that. Business wants predictability. Yes, it, desperately. It's it it's why all of a sudden capital expenditures six months before every presidential election go way down because people that uncertainty makes people cautious. 
Well, if you have somebody who's the head of the whole country who is unpredictable by nature, it's going to make it difficult for business. I think I think that's going to favor Hillary. That 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 kind of the bully and the push push pull thing is going to be less attractive. This weekend, Trump was speaking to the NRA, and he had a tete-a-tete with uh, Hillary Clinton about guns. Now, during your tenure, the horrible shootings at the Planned Parenthood Clinic and Aurora, and yet from the outside, it's been reported that a championing of a gun ban or a partial gun ban or some gun regulations really hurt Democrats elected to the state house. Is that true? Is there a right way to talk about guns? What has your experience with uh, trying to pass some gun regulation and the blowback from that taught you? Well, it depends on what you're what you're looking at. I think certain regulations are like universal background checks. I still can't believe we can't do that on a national level. When we passed our gun legislation in 2013, we went back and checked for 2012. We got to roughly half the gun purchases and, and asked for background checks to, for half the purchases. And we found just in Colorado, right, 5 million people in just in one year, uh, 38 people convicted of homicide who tried to buy a gun and we stopped them. I mean, when people hear those numbers, they say, of course, it takes mm-hmm. 10 minutes, it costs 10 bucks, and it only costs you when you're buying the gun. That's cheap insurance to make sure we keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people, yeah. right? When you see that 38 people were convicted of homicide and tried to buy a gun and we stopped them, it makes it hard to oppose universal background checks. Yes, it does. But what about open carry? Now, this is popular with the people of Colorado, and yet there have been problems with it. I was reading about a case where walking a man was with, I think, a long rifle walking down the street, gets called into the police. He's seeming erratic. The police in, was it in Denver? Colorado Springs. Yeah, Colorado Springs said, we can't do anything to intervene. He winds up killing a few people. What do you do about open carry? Well, I think, again, you got to get the facts. Some people... With it, whether to open carry or not, appear to be menacing. And in certain places, you shouldn't have an open carry, d- depending on you know certain universities, schools, obviously. My opinion, crazy to have teenagers with guns in schools, right? Yeah. And so what about open carry elsewhere? In general, what's your stance yeah, Generally, on it? I don't like it. But you know, being a Coloradan, I'm very slow to say I'm going to get rid of it because that, that Second Amendment is almost – it's just part of that outdoor, rustic frontier heritage – it is more than just a right. It's it's part of who they are. Okay. And this l- literally is my last question. I like an IPA. I like a double IPA. I think it's gotten crazy with the amount of hops and the triple IPAs. I don't know if I have an upper threshold for international bitterness units, but how bitter do you like your beer? <laughs> well, I love being interviewed by somebody who wants to talk about bitterness units. Um, <laughs> well, we talked about politics. That's all about bitterness units. <laughs> so I'm one of those guys that in the winter, yeah. I, I, it's not just darker beers like porter and stouts. I like more more hops in the winter. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that is. And the summer I want to have a, a, a I don't, uh, Exactly. Yeah, I don't yes. want to have all those hops. So I don't know if it's a straight line or whether there's a cliff in there. I think usually about the end of March, I just had enough of the triple IPAs or even the double IPAs. Um, but there is you know, something to be said for strong hopping. And I actually brought you a gift. I have you – know, the book is The Opposite of Woe, right? Yes. My Life in Beer and Politics. But we brought you a bottle of the opposite of Woe, which is not for sale. Uh-huh. You can't get it. But my old partner brewed it as a kind of a celebratory beer for the release of the book. So we brought you a special gift with Thank a you. with a Hickenlooper label that's the opposite of woe. Do you know the IBUs on that one? I don't know, but it's pretty high. It's not a it's not it's a not. double IPA, but it's close. All right. The opposite of woe is the name of the book and almost the name of the beer. <laughs> my <laughs> life in beer and politics, John Hickenlooper. Thank you so much, Governor. Mike, it was my pleasure. <laughs> 
So at Slate, they do this thing called Slate Picks. They pick the best stuff they like. It's It could be TV shows that June Thomas writes about. It could just be, you know, household items that Dan Coys plays with. With me and the gist and you, it's books. We pick the best books of the gist. We've done 500 episodes, and I think we narrowed it down to 20 books. So the criteria was had to be actually good books and also actually good interviews. That can be found at picks.slate.com. That's picks.slate.com. And now the spiel. We don't need no stinking advanced degrees. I was first amused and then bemused by a couple of stories I saw in the New York Times in the last few days. Bemused means confused. You know that, right? So this is a genre of story that comes every presidential cycle. It's a big media vetting. It's a deep dive into a set of policy proposals. The attempt is to convey to you, the reader, the potential voter, the strengths and weaknesses of these ideas that a candidate has. It's really a fundamental purpose of the press, and it's only been challenged as of late by one key fact, and that fact is this. To the extent that Donald Trump has ideas, they're all ludicrous. So what do you do? Do you treat the ideas as if they weren't ludicrous? I guess that's what you do do. If you're an editor, you might do that. It seems fair. Or you could do what CNN does. CNN hires experts and just has them open both barrels on the man who would be commander. Here's here's David Rothkopf on CNN talking about Trump's big foreign policy speech. When it came to facts, some of the facts he offered were wrong or misleading. He talked about a manufacturing trade deficit without mentioning the surplus in services. He talked about oil being shipped to ISIS from Libya when that isn't actually what's happening. He talked about, uh, you know, Obama beating up on our allies and then proceeded, as the governor noted, to beat up on our allies and say, look at how they're not supporting us in in Japan or Korea. Look at how they're not supporting us in Europe. I'm going to go after our allies. So it was either fact free or it was incoherent. Mm -hmm. Most of it was fact free and incoherent. That is an exciting take for CNN. When I watched, I didn't say, no, give me more. Tell me the history of the 38th parallel. Tell me about the Guangzhou uprising. No, you got guys, a guy who's smarter than you, Rothkopf, assessing a guy who's pretending he's smart, Trump, and he's saying, no, that guy's unsmart. Perfect. Works fine. But in print, you got a lot more space to work with. And if you're the New York Times, you got a self-image to uphold right? You think that kind of thing is facile, inadequate. It's just not your mission. And let me just say at the outset that I have respect for the New York Times commitment to this sort of thing. It is their job to offer massive digs into serious policy proposals by the Republican frontrunner, no matter how crazy bananas the policy proposal is. And a giant wall in Mexico would certainly make banana importers crazy and everyone else. On Friday, in a massive cover piece, the Times talked to the following experts about Trump's plan. Can we call it a plan? It's really just a phrase that took off with a life of its own. Here were the experts. Michael Chertoff, Bush Secretary of Homeland Security. Julie Myers-Wood, a director of ICE under Bush. John Sandwig, who led ICE, the Immigration Customs Enforcement Service, for months under Obama. You know what? Mary, this is going to take too long. Can you do that thing where you kind of cascade all the names? All right, here we go. John Sandwig, who led ICE for seven David months. David Aguilar, who is Chief of Border Control and Commissioner Willie of Tyler. Ventriloquist and puppeteer best known for Lester. Sally Spencer, 
United States Secretary for International Boundary Sternfeld, Chief Executive of Superior Concrete, a Texas-based builder of walls. Larry Playfair, longtime defenseman of the Buffalo Sabres. Michael Deere, professor of UC Berkeley who specializes on the border with Mexico. Patricia Mulroy, Brookings Institution Senior Gabriel Eckstein, water law expert at Texas A&M. All right. Thank you. I cheated a little bit. Did you catch them? Can we play them back? Willie Tyler, ventriloquist and puppeteer best known for Larry Lester. Playfair, longtime defenseman of the Buffalo Sabres. Yeah, Willie Tyler, Larry Playfair. They weren't actually quoted. And I guess this all shows that the Times are a bunch of good and fair and proper journalists, which is really the opposite of the impression you'd get if you only relied on Trump's Twitter account. They also did do the thing where they gave the Trump side an opportunity to flesh out the details Hope Hicks, a Trump spokeswoman, did not directly respond, quote, the proposal speaks for itself. And they talked to these great experts. I mean, that water guy, that concrete guy, I bet the concrete guy when the Times called was like, I am so glad you're on the phone. I have been waiting for this call for a year. Then they also did the thing, they quoted specific experts and four, no, sorry, eight different times in the article, they said, experts said, experts in immigration policy, experts in domestic security, water experts in the Southwest question how Mr. Trump's wall, experts in interviews were skeptical that the wall would be built. (sighs) So what did the experts say? Well... The phrase batshit crazy was never actually uttered, but it was strongly implied. Although this was interesting. One of the experts, Michael Deere, who wrote the book, Why Walls Won't Work, when asked if the wall would work, said, nah, he said, nah, it's not going to work. Come on. But you know what? I bet if they got a professor who wrote why a wall would work and they asked him about Trump's specific plan, he would be like, nah, the Trump thing? No, that, that, that could never work. And you know, something like that did happen. Healthline, which is an online site that writes about health, had an article, what would happen if Donald Trump's healthcare plan were actually implemented? They interviewed experts. One of them from the Health Policy and Strategy Associates gave good quotes like, it'll cause dislocation and trauma to the healthcare system. It's a bunch of loose, stupid, disavowed, half-baked ideas. A bunch of junior high kids could have done better. But look who else they also got. They got a guy who said, there will be collision and chaos. It won't be a pretty sight. His name is Thomas Miller, and he wrote the book, Why Obamacare is Wrong for America. So even that guy thinks the Trump healthcare plan is pretty stupid. I want to read one line that I thought was great in the Healthline piece. They had a Sam Clovis, the national chairman and policy advisor for the Trump campaign, saying that it'll make health care more affordable and accessible. Five experts interviewed by Healthline didn't see the picture as quite so rosy. Although they see merit in some of the plan's individual components, they foresee higher rates, more uninsured people, and a climate that ranges from uncertainty to havoc to total chaos in the healthcare market. I like that havoc is the middle ground. <laughs> like that's the look. We don't want to I mean we don't want to paint too bad a picture. Look, there could be havoc. If some things go bad but some things go good, we can hope for havoc. And then on Sunday, the New York Times has this story, economic promises a President Trump could and couldn't keep. And here they quote, we got to do the thing again. John Deskins, director of the West Seth Virginia Harris, University top official in the Labor Department. William Stock, Laura in Philadelphia, president-elect of the Klein, top official at Treasury. Tom Korologos, longtime Republican strategist William and William Gale, a Bush economist and tax policy Nicholas Bagley, professor at the University Don of Barry, Michigan. directed the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. Kevin under Book, head of research at Clearview Energy Partners. The thing, the problem is, all these guys have to be identified, oh, he's with this school, oh, he served in that administration. 
and they're arguing against Trump. Are they convincing anyone? Trump is just identified as Trump. Mr. He's Mr. Trump. He says the wall will be built. And while I don't think a wall will ever be built, I understand why he thinks it'll be built because he just said some crazy thing and the New York Times goes and tracks down 12 policy experts in that specific area. I mean, did you hear what the concrete guy said? It's a goofy idea. And I don't know why the New York Times keeps punishing us with this. I guess it's good that it's out there. But to you as the reader, to me as the reader, well, let's just say potential reader, because I don't know how many people ever actually read this. It's got to stop at some point, right? Today, Donald Trump unleashed his plan to rewrite the tax code via a limerick. Several experts in tax policy cast doubt on the proposal. Robert Pinsky, U.S. Poet Laureate, pointed out that Trump's proposed limerick wasn't even a five-line poem in AABBA form, but a retweet of a lady in a Chewbacca mask with the hashtag Goofy Elizabeth Warren. Donald Trump's latest proposal to make America great again is as follows, and I read in full, Flibbity, flabbity, flubbity, flur, crazy Bernie, crooked Hillary, poopy pants Harry Reid. An expert in adult incontinence said there was no evidence that the Senate minority leader ever soiled himself. And the chairman of the American Linguistic Society said that Mr. Trump's seemingly random collection of syllables has no known meaning in any Indo-European language. A Trump spokesman said the statement, Schlibbity schlabbity for itself. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson is a member of the Oscar Isaacs Mothers Brigade. No, not the Al Axe's Martyrs Brigade. That's the rebranding. It's all about moms who find Oscar Isaac dreamy. Because who doesn't? Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's an adherent of the Al Shabab offshoot. Eh, Shabab. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. You know the popular front for the liberation of Palestine? He points your attention to the extremely unpopular front for the liberation of Palestine. They're much less scary. The gist, we advise Hamas to join with Al-Shabaab and become Hamas Shmamas. Oomperu depuru duperu, and thanks for listening. You know, the service industry, when you've had that angry customer and you say, well, I don't give a damn, you know, yeah. get on it, go, go do what you want. Well, they go out and they tell their side of the story and trash your reputation for two months and you never hear about it until it's too late. <laughs> After that happens, you learn there's no margin in having enemies and you'll do everything you can to make sure that person's your, you know, it leaves with a, a fair take. More like that officials should be doing that. I don't know if we could Yelp review Donald Trump out of the <laughs> presidency. <laughs>